Welcome to Stories Behind the Stars podcast, dedicated to honoring the fallen heroes of World War II. Welcome to the Stories Behind the Stars podcast. Today, I have the opportunity to be interviewing Susan Singleton. Susan, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you found the project? As she said, my name is Susan Singleton. I live in Champaign, Illinois. Uh, I'm a retired librarian. And I've been a genealogist for about 30 years. Not professionally, but I've done a lot of genealogy. I found out about the project. One of my sisters sent me an email. And as much as we can remember, it was from uh, the National Archives that had been a, a brief mention of the project on one of their um, announcements. And uh, she thought I might be interested. So I contacted your father and uh, started working on it. How do you start a story? Um, I start a story by going to the basic, uh, find a grave, uh, honor states, fold three, just to get a little basic information that way. Um, and then I proceed as if I'm doing the soldier's genealogy. I, you know, look them up on Ancestry, find out where their parents are, try to get a basic story of where they lived in their childhood, uh, what sort of... Uh, background they came from. And then I turned to the military. Um, in most cases, uh, you already provide the information that lets us know what unit and uh, the timing of their death. And then I started investigating that unit to see uh, what their role was, what where they were on the day the soldier died and where they were a few months before uh, to give it a little more context. I really like that perspective of actually, okay, I'm sitting down and I'm doing his genealogy. I haven't heard that yet as a, as a mindset going into the story. And I feel like that really just kind of lays a great foundation for you to know this is what we're doing. So as you've been doing these stories, have you noticed any trends or found things that are insightful that you didn't really know about World War II? Uh, well, I've learned a lot about World War II. I, I thought I knew some things, particularly in the European theater. I didn't know much about the Pacific War at all. Um, my father was a veteran of World War II and um, an uncle died in the, the air war over Europe. Um, so the sort of places they were and things they did, I already knew about. Um, I'm, of course, being older, I'm most surprised by how incredibly young many of the soldiers were. Uh, they go directly uh, from high school graduation and enlist the next day. That's been the most surprising overall 
Of course, the diversity is just incredible <laughs> in every aspect uh, that they can be diverse. And uh, I think I've become uh, also more aware of um, the uh, aspect of luck, <laughs> if that's what you want to call it, <laughs> no. Um, you know, a, a bad day to decide to, <laughs> oh, I'll take another shift <laughs> before my day's done. I'll take one last flight before I go home. Um, that's sort of what I mean by luck. It's real though, because my uncle who was killed in World War II, he was in a, his squadron. He was the only one out of the 10 men that he fought the war with that, ha that had to stay later. They all went home. So he was the one guy who, who got, drew the bad stick, I guess, really. And he was having to stay later and help them do some more things. And, and, and he ended up passing away on in a his plane crashed in uncharted mountain in the Philippines and the war was over the war was over when he died and that element of the look at the draw really I mean that's what's yeah. you know an wrong idiom we place, use wrong time <laughs> yeah exactly. I hadn't really thought about that but so much of it is yeah you're sitting in the wrong place at the foxhole one guy gets the bullet and the other guy doesn't and I feel like that really impacted a lot of the veterans as well. You know, when I have talked to veterans, that's something I've heard a lot. Is it's the arbitrary nature of it or some snafu uh, three layers up from you <laughs> in command. Uh, somebody gets a coordinate wrong on an artillery attack. Wow, I love that, that you bring that up. Um, is there any story in particular that you want to share with us that just really stood out to you? There, there's so many. I had really a hard time coming up with this uh, because there's very heroic ones and there's very pathetic uh, stories that come out of it. But I... Um, I, the one I finally chose uh, is Marvin uh, Tannehill uh, from Utah. He had served in World War I. Um, he got out of the Army for a couple of years, and then in the early 30s, re-enlisted. I uh, was in the Quartermaster Corps, spent most of his time at a training camp in Wyoming, um, had a couple of kids, a very normal eight to five sort of military life. And then in 1940, he's a major. By that time, he gets uh, sent to the Philippines and arrives just um, a couple of months uh, before well, I guess he went in 41 and arrives just a couple of months before the Japanese attack the Philippines, which is the day after Pearl Harbor. And there was a very uh, relatively small um, 
U.S. military presence in the Philippines at that time, they were very poorly supplied in every way. And there was no way once the Japanese sent in ground forces that um, you would either be dead or taken prisoner, <laughs> though they held out for months and months uh, before uh, the Philippines um, surrendered. But by this time, he was in his mid-late 40s and um, was taken prisoner, lived through the Bataan Death March, was in a Philippine prisoner of war camp for two and a half years, uh, where, you know, the conditions were very harsh. Then as the Americans started getting closer to sweeping across the Pacific and coming to the point where they might invade the Philippines and try to take it back, uh, the Japanese took most of the prisoners that were left and decided they were going to ship them to Japan. Um, so... Well, presumably their motive was that they could use them as bargaining chips. And if there were a lot of American soldiers in Japan, there'd be less bombing of the country. Well, they put all of these people on, there were several uh, cargo ships. And they were marked as Japanese cargo ships. Um, and... Of course, what Americans were supposed to do was to bomb Japanese cargo ships. Um, so they did. He was, um, many, many people, of course, were killed when the ships sank. Uh, some survived because they were not traveling that far from shore. The ones that did survive, most of them were uh, caught and put back on another cargo ship to continue their journey. And he survived until the sinking of the second cargo ship. And I just, I found that, I suppose partly because he was older and I didn't know how he had lived through any of the first things. <laughs> You'd think that that would be enough uh, to go through, but he was certainly not alone in the people that were killed in that manner. Wouldn't it be so amazing to sit down next to that man and hear his life stories from World War One and <laughs> World War Two, right? And just this man's life spanned the biggest wars in the world's history, and he did he fought both, and he was a survivor and he was a fighter, and he had two sons, and they were both in the military at the time he died. Oh, wow. So they fought in World War II then as yes. well. Yeah. That's amazing. Do you have another story you want to share with us? One that I think is uh, interesting. There's so many that are interesting from the, the human aspect or the aftermath. Um, the name is Edmund Duckworth from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Um, he was in the 16th Infantry, uh, fought in North Africa, Sicily, a lot of this before, before he got to D-Day. 
but evidently quite extraordinary. He within 40 days, he won a silver star in um, North Africa um, and then won another one in the invasion of Sicily, which from my understanding is they don't really give you a second one. They give you, a, um, I think, a bronze oak leaf cluster to hang on your first one. It was in the... Um, invasion then of uh, Italy before they pulled the 16th Infantry out to go to England to train for D-Day. And um, he got married there five days before D-Day. <laughs> and uh, was killed then very early in the day of June 6th. Um, but his wife was pregnant and had a, they had a son and his uh, final words to her, this is from a newspaper article, was that he wanted his child to be reared in the United States. So after the war, his father had to petition the president or something to get special uh, permission for the wife and child to come and live with them in Pennsylvania. So it really affected not only the son's life, but the whole family's. That's incredible. So she was, pro she was from England then. Yes. And he met her. Yeah. They couldn't have known each other that long though, if he wasn't in England that long, or maybe he. Well, no. Um, most of the training for D-Day, people were there from three to nine months. So he had time to meet somebody. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a really incredible story. I love hearing what happens to the families afterwards. Mm -hmm. It really adds a depth of human understanding and element to the sacrifice that was made. It does. I uh, have been surprised by the number of cases in which one parent, anyway, died within a year. And I'm sure it was grief and shock in many cases. Yeah, my, my great-grandfather lived with us when we were, when I was little, and he had a picture of his son by his bedside, and every day he'd wake up and, and tell me, that's my son, and I'm going to see him soon. And I don't think that he really ever was... It was such a shock, right? Because the war was over that he ever really was a lot, ever gave, was able to mourn and grieve. And, and he was so young, his son was so young, right? And, and everything was taken from him. I think that really impacted him for his whole life. And he lived to be 96, right? So he, he lived a very long, long, well, long time. Hundreds of thousands of families that had to go through years of missing in action status and not knowing, uh, very traumatic. Yeah, we were actually really lucky that he was able to be found. I think it was like four or five years after the war, they did find his body and bring him back. But yeah, I mean, they're still finding these men, you know, you still see that. So um, if you could tell anybody who's thinking about volunteering, what's, what's one thing you would tell them? 
it's it's easy to say it's not that hard, but you do have to put some work into it. And especially if you have absolutely no genealogy or military history background. But if you have either one of those, it's very easy to fill in enough to write a story. You're basically writing an obituary. Um, it's like half obituary, half tribute. <laughs> but it's you're not writing a book. They're short and uh, you don't have to know every single detail in either the family side or the military side to be able to write a good story. Well, we really appreciate those the work that you've done. Thank you so much for your time, Susan, today, and uh, look forward to seeing some more of your stories. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you're at all interested in volunteering or just want to learn more about our amazing project, please visit us at www.storiesbehindthestars.org.